0: This is the IBJ podcast for the week of May 9th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. May is Mental Health Month. And while this week's podcast isn't specifically about mental health, it is about keeping your head. For something that is so quantitative, it's hard to find something that provokes more emotion than money. I am willing to admit that when I am feeling down or feeling vulnerable, I like to look up my 401k balance. After 30 years of saving, seeing a fairly healthy balance makes me feel more grounded and okay, mildly euphoric. By the same token, nothing can make you feel as exposed and hopeless, and frankly, even shameful, than losing a lot of money. And it could be for any reason. It could be the result of bad investments. It could be the result of a divorce or a long illness. It could be due simply to the wild gyrations of the stock market. We've had two major recessions in the last 14 years with 40-ish plus percent drops in the stock market. For folks who are close to retirement, that is terrifying. And it begs the question, if you are close-ish to retirement and you experience a financial crisis or lose a good deal of the financial worth that you expected to have, how do you persevere? How do you get yourself back on track and salvage a relatively comfortable retirement from that shortfall? You know, or what if you just woke up one day and realized you had forgotten to save for retirement? One thing is for sure, there is no value in panicking or despairing. You can work through it. There's a safe path you can take. In the latest issue of IBJ, financial advice columnist, Pete the Planner, shares a letter from a reader who for undisclosed reasons has spent a great deal of the money that they made through a successful business. And it's evident that this person has hit an emotional low. Pete addresses the dangers of linking your self-worth to your financial worth. And I wanted to pick up on that thread for the podcast while also providing steps for stabilizing and buttressing your finances after a big loss. I brought in Pete for his expertise. Here's our conversation. I am pleased to welcome back to the podcast Pete Dunn, a.k.a. Pete the Planner. How are you doing, sir?
1: I'm doing well. It's May in Indianapolis, Indiana. There is no finer month. There is no finer time to live uh, in Indianapolis. The, the 500 is nigh. There is a Grand Prix, copious amounts of precipitation. It's a great time. <laughs>
0: you know, I really have to agree with you. Um, and I wouldn't have agreed with you two years ago, but since my son has become obsessed with IndyCar, I uh, I have learned so much about it and am now uh, so prideful of, of all the things you know that are related to the Speedway and the 500, uh, I really, really am looking forward to it. Here in, in my mid-50s, finally, I've decided to uh, to get on board. So this week's podcast is for people who have discovered that their financial lives have gone horribly wrong. Now, this, this could mean people who invested a lot of money in something, the stock market, real estate, or a business, and then lost it. This could be someone who's gone through a divorce and no longer has a nest egg that they anticipated. It could be somebody with unexpected medical bills that put a big dent in their savings. It could be someone who simply did a terrible job saving money for retirement and got to the age of 54 and was like, what? So the message that I hope we can provide for these folks is all hope is not lost. There are ways to stabilize and buttress your finances. And we'll have some practical advice But I was really struck in your column this week about how you focused on the mental and emotional repercussions of finding yourself in a deep financial hole.
1: Yeah, it is one of those things in the last 20 years of being in the financial world that sticks with me. I mean, here's my disclaimer for the day. I don't think I'll get choked up talking about this, but there's so many stories that I've seen over the years that as I start to think about them, they're just they're frankly breathtaking in 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 how emotional they can be. So my great my, my grandfather was a crier, so if I cry on your podcast, you better win some sort of Indiana Media Award for this thing. Um, so let's start here. Financial lives are not binary. There, there is not success and failure. And, and and what's tough about that is that's what we all assume. <laughs> we all assume you're either successful financially or you are not. And uh, So that's the first thing we have to overcome. But Mason, what I'll tell you, um, when when you and I uh, became functional working adults and we uh, started to daydream about what our future had in store, you start to think about your, your life consistently getting better. You just think it's on this upward trajectory. No one sits back at age 22 and says, I'm gonna lose half my money in a divorce, and then I'm gonna have um, you know, 80% of that go away from a medical situation, and then I'm gonna lose my job, and then I'm going to be 58 years old and, and have nothing. And so it is such a shock to the system when things don't go the way of your daydreams that that's where most people really struggle. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I want to focus on this letter that you shared from a reader, uh, who says, "I ran a successful business, made a great deal of money, and had created a very comfortable life. And then, due to what this person describes as a series of unfortunate events, uh, they spent most of that money, and now they're in a very precarious position. And what you note is extraordinary, or what you note is extraordinary about the letter is that this person acknowledges the amount of shame." that comes from this situation. As they write, I'm just hoping you can say something to make me feel like something other than a failure. Mm. And that kind of harkens back to what you were saying about you know the, the binary nature of, of you know, how we see our lives. This person has decided that they are a failure.
1: Yeah, you think about the different areas of your life uh, of, of which you sort of measure your successes and your failures in, in your relationship with behavior for that matter, something like nutrition, You know, I can't look at my nutritional life and the food decisions I make, Mason, and say to you here right now, like, I am a great success. In fact, I am not. I struggle. Like, I mean, I struggle. Um, Fitness, same. Relationships, I feel pretty good about the relationships I have. Some people struggle with faith. Other people's crossroads come in the form of, of money. And what's tough about that is, of all the things we've just talked about, the most quantifiable is money. And so it is the easiest to feel like you failed when the number is less than what you would hope the number would have been. And so when someone has one of these events, we like people to split the event, split the, split the whole thing into three, right? There's the money aspect of it, which it always feels like it's about the money, but it, it rarely is. The event, which in itself is so traumatic a relationship transition, a divorce—it's traumatic. Whether you wanted the divorce or not, it is traumatic. Uh, a medical condition, traumatic. Uh, and then the third element is—is is the person uh, themselves. Like, how are they left to cope with um, what is less than ideal, what is suboptimal? And I feel like when people don't separate those three elements—the money, the event and the 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 mental wellness after the the fact, when you conflate all of those three together, you have misery. and, and you can get to this situation where people have PTSD seriously as they're trying to uh, deal with less resources as they get older, with fewer means to provide a stream of income as as you know they leave the workforce.
0: So what are the dangers of harboring these negative emotions? Where can those
1: emotions lead you? I think back to middle school, <laughs> I had this uh, social studies teacher that had successories posters all over the room. <laughs> Remember those kiosks? Like I, there was a kiosk at Lafayette Square. There was like these really, uh, really convenient sayings on these posters. And my middle school uh, social studies teacher had one of those. Um, and, and one of them said, when preparation meets opportunity, that is success. And... W- I think about that a lot. I think about that successories poster, because when you don't have a positive financial mindset, you're not prepared for anything. An opportunity can be right there in front of you, but because you've got so much baggage, you don't see it and your situation gets worse. I'll, I'll note this, and this is a much bigger concept that I don't, I don't know where we want to go with this, but this is a much bigger concept. We, have all, we all know people right now in our lives who have stopped living because of what is going on in their life. They, they have stopped experiencing life. They've stopped going out of their house. They've stopped finding joy. And, and I'll, I'll say anecdotally, of the people I know in that situation, I feel like money or financial trauma is at the root of that. And as you look at that person and, and you love them or whatever, you just think, man, they're not enjoying life. They're not enjoying, <laughs> they're not enjoying the, the, the joys of life. And I have to say, when you were so stuck in the trauma of what could have been, especially with money, you sort of set yourself up for that.
0: I know that you know, in recent years, that we've had a, a couple of stories of uh, people who were very, very successful and then hit hard times and committed suicide. Um, and so I just wanna just point out to our readers, uh, hopefully this is apropos, that uh, if you tuned into this podcast, because I mean, you feel like um, you really are in, in a dark situation, You can always call the national suicide hotline that's 800-273-8255 again 800-273-8255 you can also text them if you want to text them Uh, text the word home to 741741 Um, and that may be a better situation for you Um, and and i don't want to want to bring up these uh, the situations i'm referring to uh, in particular because that's just Honestly, I feel I feel bad about it.
1: You know, I, I think about those situations. a lot. I just want to say and we're not going to talk about the situations, yeah. not because we don't want to give it voice, because that's the whole point of this 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 podcast today is to give it voice. But um, I think about some very specific and remarkable stories within our community in the last 20 years and what you've just said have happened. I think about those because that's that's the that's the tone of today. And, you know, you, you mentioned the crisis support line. Uh, I, I happen to. I know someone who used to be an executive director of that line and, and what they said to me always resonates to me with me when I think about people's financial struggles. They say oftentimes when people get to that point, it's not that they want to be dead. It's that it hurts so much to live. Right. And so if you get to this point where you are obsessed with what your financial life used to look like, and now you are faced with the realities of today, um, you can start to see how those feelings can escalate. So I, what, what I'd love to do, is to talk about if you find yourself in this situation, how do you turn the wheel? How do you how do you get to the point where you can sort of recast your thoughts about your financial lives? And I don't want to say recast your dreams. That's a little heavy handed for me today, mm-hmm. but you can certainly set some new goals around what's coming.
0: That I, I assume that, you know, when you are or that nothing really can make you feel more powerless and more afraid than losing money. And that when you feel powerless and afraid you tend to make dumb decisions can you kind of kick off this this part of the conversation talking about what are some of the some of the dumb decisions that people make uh inadvisable decisions uh you know when they find themselves uh sort of you know in this you know incredibly anxious
1: mindset yeah in, inadvisable is probably the, the best way to go with that right yeah. it's <laughs> it's that with all the stress and chaos you, you go to make the best decision you can, but since you're so clouded, you end up making a, a rough decision. You'll end up borrowing money from, from family, which which sometimes is a solution, but it is generally not a great solution for anyone involved. You can end up just giving up. I mean, and I, I mean there's there situations where people just quit their job or they're just like, well, we'll just see see what happens. Um, <laughs> that's, that's not good. Uh, and I would also note, what people often lose when they get in this situation is they lose control over the idea that they can be the solution to the problem you know i I think it's a we're talking about this with my executive team this week my favorite thing about problem solving is i think it is a privilege to solve a problem that's why my entire company is based on solving people's problems like i think it is a privilege to solve a problem and when you were feeling down financially and it did not go the way you want Mason, how privileged do you feel in that in that in that regard? You do not. you You lose your mojo, right? I mean, that's what the, you could call uh, this episode, Mason talks about people losing their mojo. That's the title. <laughs> Go ahead, print it. You get the long tail keyword search on that. You're golden. But that's what this is about. It's like, how do you how do you regain that? Um, I think it has to do with going back old school and, and taking a look at what the expenses have turned into and what the income provides. Yes, I'm talking about a budget, go figure. But when things are so painful and so bad in a particular area of your life, most people just close their eyes and don't actually look at the real data because they think it'll be so painful, and it will be painful. But with that pain, with that awareness, will start to to wear off, especially if you get a professional involved.
0: Yeah, I've already I to say, we probably just say right off the top uh, that you probably need a financial advisor. Uh, if you can, if you have the
1: means, I don't disagree with you. I want to offer something else here. Sure. I think you need someone to listen to you. (laughs) I I mean, um, most financial advisors don't do what we're talking about here. If, If someone had a bunch of money and then doesn't have a bunch of money, a financial advisor is for generally for people who have a bunch of money. So that is the hole in our industry, isn't it? If you're struggling, don't go to the person who uh, generally helps people who have millions of dollars. That actually doesn't make a lot of sense. So you could go to a, tus- a trusted friend or family member, go to the best listener you know, uh, because what we're really trying to talk about here is getting your feelings out, getting them out so they don't build up. And then number two, just putting together some practical steps of, of what is next. I think what was really common I saw a few years ago, this is post great recession, was that was that what it's called right the great recession 08, 09, right
0: yeah 0809 yeah okay, okay.
1: post great recession
0: as opposed to the recession we just went through more recently
1: <laughs> yeah so 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 what i really saw is that i saw a lot of people post 50 years old who for one reason or another looked up and and saw that they had nothing right they they had a job they had no assets they maybe even had a mortgage, maybe they had some future obligations like college expenses for their kids. And I think if you if you wake up at a monumental age, like 50 years old and see that you have nothing, it can feel like game over. And the reality is at 50 years old with 17 years left in the workforce, you you actually should be fine. It, it just feels court, culturally like a really bad thing I don't know why I'm talking about another publication on your podcast, but when I I did a series for USA Today a few years ago of like broken 50, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Right? And the idea was if you are broken 50, by all means, it's not over. Things are, things are actually fine. I think you only need about 15 years to reconstruct a financial life from scratch. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, 10 years is possible. Five years is pretty tough.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's say I'm broken 50. Walk me through the steps
1: starts with the budget, right? Right off the bat.
0: No, I'm I'm a dummy. I don't know how to make a budget. How am I going to learn how to make a budget?
1: Yeah, no, that's actually a really good question. I don't want to say that every other question you've asked me on this podcast for the last two years was a bad question, but that was a really good question. A a budget itself, just the word budget, it, it, it turns people off. No offense, dental listeners. It's like a root canal. No one wants to hear about it, okay? So for me, it begins with when does your income hit your account when does your income come into your life? Like if you get paid on the 1st and the 15th of the month, just just acknowledging those times, adding up those two deposits, and you start with the income available to you. Then all you do, and I think it's the simplest way to do it, is you go to your bank account or whatever you primarily spend money out of, like a debit card or credit card. Then you just classify all the expenditures and, and you see how this matches up. You say, am I living uh, beyond my means? Or am I living within my means? Am I spending more than I make or do I make more than I spend? And so that's, that is, that is, that could take you a week. I mean, it could also take you 30 minutes, but it could take you a week. And I think it's worth really living in that space for a little bit and not getting too quick with, with understanding what that looks like, because the end goal here is to, i I guess I'm, I'm, I'm revealing, I'm revealing the truth of this all. At that point in time, if you're broken 50, your best chance to retire successfully is to get to the point where your Social Security funds match your needs. That's it. That's the method. OK, so what's strange about Social Security is, and I say this respectfully, is that a certain income level, it is incredibly adequate and actually easier to retire on than those who make double that and then have to recreate the income with assets they've accumulated. So that's to say for some people, if you're broke in 50, you, it may not actually be that bad because you have a huge replacement value that is your social security benefit. And mm-hmm. all you have to do over 15 to 17 years is to wean yourself off the income, which is in excess of that amount.
0: Oh, this is great. This is a To me, this is a novel idea. So wait so, a second, you're
1: saying all my other ideas in the last two years have not been novel, and this is a novel idea.
0: Uh, those are your words. <laughs> uh so I, I think most folks know the longer you wait to collect social security, the more that you will receive. And I think it is the top out right now at seventy.
1: Yeah, seventy. And in I mean, not to go down this path. It it needs to increase. I mean, it needs to go to seventy two and all those sorts of things. But I don't know yeah. if the courage exists right now for the people that need to make that decision. Right. So you, you wait
0: till you can get to the point where you've topped out with the Social Security benefit and you just make sure that your lifestyle can be supported by that benefit.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you literally go to irs.gov, you calculate what your uh, Social Security benefit amount will be at age 67 or 70. Um, you look at that amount, you see where your income is now, and then you just make sure that the, the need that you have, the obligations that you have fit nicely in your future income available. Wow. that was super easy. You know wow. the weirdest part about this and this this is this is not helpful with rising interest rates, but this is also true. Mason, I've seen people broken 50 find themselves with a mortgage, choose to get a 15-year mortgage or find their way within a 15-year mortgage or they find that their mortgage will be paid off within the next 15 to 17 years. And so what a person ends up doing is slashing their largest expense item and they match up that that slash the final payment with when they take Social Security. So what it might look like is you reduce the need of income by 25% because that's what you allocate towards your mortgage Mm -hmm. at the same time that you take on that Social Security amount and, and retire from the workforce. And again, it is it's a little spooky how convenient that works out.
0: Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit TaftLaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and our discussion with Pete the Planner about surviving financial crises. Um, I want to ask about the advice that uh, I I think we've talked about before and and I, I see really just constantly, replenishing your emergency fund. Uh, is is that that second thing that I that I should do once I get this budget thing figured out?
1: Uh, yeah, actually, because if you uh, uh, terrible metaphor time, it's do you have like a stinger you can put in the podcast? It's like Pete the Planner's <laughs> terrible metaphors. Um, let's say you're going on a family vacation and uh, you, you're going down the road. You would not leave without a spare tire in your trunk, would you? I mean, it wouldn't even make any sense. It, it'd be ridiculous to go on a long journey without a spare tire. And an emergency fund is a spare tire. It is there to have your back in a terrible situation. It prevents you from going into debt. gives you a little bit of confidence. It gives you a goal to shoot for. An emergency fund is like this thing that that people underestimate the power of. And, And I know that because they're constantly thinking, well, how can I get a better interest rate on my savings account? It's like, you're missing the point. The point the point of a a spare tire is is not how many miles you get out of it because you're you're trying not to use it. It's it's for an emergency. Same thing with savings accounts. Of course, I say this during a rising interest rate environment where people are looking at I bonds and everything else. Uh, I would just say that people underestimate the true uh, mental power of an emergency fund.
0: You know, I I was looking at uh, uh, some of the news stories about the Fed. Pushing up interest rates, I think, by a half point, and uh, and there, there's some story, maybe an Associated story, Associated Press story, that was enthusing that we could get to the point where you know savings accounts could pay two percent. <laughs> I'm like, oh golly! The
1: the biggest takeaway there for me is the verb enthusing. Yeah, I was pretty excited about that deployment.
0: Yeah, so I, I looked at my my uh, my current emergency fund, and then I multiplied that by by two percent, and I discovered that yeah, I probably it might not be worth um, trying to invest that in the treasury bonds or, or you know, whatever is available out there if I'm not going to get
1: 2%. So, so once a person has an emergency fund and they get 2% because of rising interest rates and they happen to have read the same article that you did, uh, at, at that point in time, uh, it, it's really about identifying the obligations in your life that are time sensitive. So that's to say some obligations go away, like a car payment, a medical bill, a mortgage, college payments or also called student loans for people who randomly call them college payments. i don't know <laughs> uh, And so you identify those and you start to match them up. You say, okay, when does this go away? Like w- when is this obligation completely out of my hair? Um, so that's an important step because if you're looking for momentum, like true sort of, I would almost call it spiritual momentum where you are you were downtrodden, like you were are, you broken, sad and you're trying to build your confidence. It's those points to say, just another couple years, April of 2024, I'll be yeah. good to go. Like Mason, that matters so much when you're trying to rebuild your confidence, you're trying to find your mojo. You have to know when things will get better because what happens when you're in financial chaos is that you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You just can't see it. You can't even, you, you can't conceive of the fact that you're going to at some point feel better than you feel right now about your money. And that is a choking feeling.
0: So uh, real quick, uh, when folks are are aiming for an emergency fund, uh, is there a simple uh, equation that we can give them for how much they need? Uh,
1: Once you've calculated your expenses, your monthly expenses in your budget, the goal should be three months of that set aside. Now, once you've achieved that and once you've got a little bit more stability and you're heading towards retirement, it really should try to climb towards six months to a year, but giving that guidance overwhelms people. Like we're talking about people picking up the pieces here And I also haven't said this uh, today, and I want to make sure we get this out. We are not talking about income here today in terms of this is a big problem for people that make X number of dollars versus people who make X number of dollars. This challenge we're talking about today is all encompassing of all income levels. Because the point of the email from the reader this week in my column was, you could tell that person probably was making deep into the six figures. The person was fine. They arguably made millions of dollars and they had all gone away. This has nothing to do... With income whatsoever, it has to do with the events that life has dealt you, and how many of those resources which you had once accumulated you needed to deploy to deal with those issues.
0: Uh, what about paying off debt? Is that my next step?
1: Yeah, I, and really the thing is, you can you can try to time that up with retirement as well, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's the weird part about this. If you if you time up paying off debt, whether it's a mortgage or Credit cards, or a bookie, for that matter, and you tie it up for when you when you transition onto Social Security retirement income. It's pretty convenient. It's pretty tight, and, and sure. it and it works. And you know, I'm th- it's we're having this conversation here, and I I'm thinking of an old client of mine back when I was a financial advisor that did just that. She was able to take care of her debts, which once at I think she was fifty two or fifty three, just tens of thousands of dollars of debt. And what she was able to do over time is just to make that part of her strategy to retire. And so it all fit together really nicely. The good news is she started to catch some breaks. You know, when uh, success is when opportunity meets preparation, uh, you know, she started to see a little clearer because she wasn't so convinced that downtrodden was her path in life forever. I'm
0: assuming you want to pay off your higher interest debt, your credit card debt, for example, first.
1: Yeah, you know, I, technically that's the best way to do it, but I'll say, depending on the situation, it's, it's sometimes better to pay off the lowest balance first because you get that momentum. When you, Anytime you see a zero balance on a debt, it, it, it does convince you that you're making progress. If you've got a giant debt with a huge interest rate, I can tell you the interest you're saving by doing it that way, but it doesn't feel as good as a zero balance does. And on top
0: of of all this money management, what about investments, Uh, refocusing any of your existing investments, rejiggering your plan? And I would I would assume you would want to try to sock away as much as you could as quickly as you can so you could take advantage of compounding
1: returns. That is true. And I don't want to be dismissive of what you've just said. I'll just find that has a lot less to do with it than people think. Uh, You've got 10 years, 15 years for your money to compound that is not a lot of time. That is likely one compounding within that time frame, which is not a lot. The point of saving at age 22, which Mason, you are not 22. The point (laughs) of saving at 22 is that you're going to have four or five compoundings, right? And so this is really about making sure you live within your means and that the income available retirement can provide for that. I will say, I have seen people get distracted by the investment side of this. Oh, I gotta get a 18% rate of return for this to work. It's like, Jimmy, you're missing the boat here. This has nothing to do with this. This has to do with the decisions you make on a monthly basis. Fascinating.
0: Yeah, that was my next question was, I assumed that people would be tempted to try some kind of high risk, high return strategy to get back up to level as quickly as possible.
1: I feel like I'm due to give my monthly don't just invest in cryptocurrency and think that's your way to solve the problem. Please do. I think eventually I'm going to be known as the guy that said like the Internet was a fad or something <laughs> with my insistence that people who are struggling should not go all in on cryptocurrency. I mean, I, that will be my legacy on my my tombstone someday. Do people call them tombstones? Grave market? No one cares. It will say the Internet was a fad. Good luck or okay. something like that.
0: What about. Let's say you have uh, some funds left in your 401k. What about taking out a loan against your 401k?
1: No, it's not generally inadvisable. Mm-hmm. I think I think that is a break glass in case of an emergency. And, and, and the tough part about that is we're just describing a process right now, Mason, and that is an emergency. But I still don't want people to really do that.
0: What about t- getting any kind of loan at all for, from any, any source? Remortgaging your house, getting... Uh, the equity
1: there. The one that makes some semblance of sense to me is using equity within your house. but I don't like it to start the process because if you haven't solved the underlying behavior issues and cash flow issues, you've just used your get out of jail free card and your problem gets worse. So I do like to see I do like to see a home equity line be involved, but not until one, two, three years down the road. Uh,
0: We talked a little bit about either postponing retirement or uh, just timing your retirement for Social Security. I I guess maybe nothing's stopping you getting a second job?
1: Yeah, that's true. And I think that's a a good strategy, but it it is finite. Um, You know, hustle is one thing. Willingness to work is another thing. Ability to work that your health holds up is is a whole other thing, and if your plan means that you need to work to earn $600 additional a month to supplement your income. The second you can't work, your plan falls apart because you don't have that $600 a month to supplement your income. So Mm -hmm. I find when people get a second job the wrong way, whether they're a younger person trying to pay off debt or uh, an older person trying to supplement their retirement income, it can it can actually make the problem worse.
0: Because we were talking about uh, this person who uh, wrote you an email. This person was a business owner let's say you you find yourself in dire financial straits. Should you focus on saving the business first or saving yourself
1: first? Always saving yourself first. There's this idea that your business can get you out of a personal financial jam. I don't buy it. I think it's your personal jam that needs to be fixed so you have the stability to move on. Uh, All the resources in the world don't matter if you're not resourceful. So to have the business create more resources for you until you've solved the resourcefulness issue just is a wasted effort. And, and I've seen that go awry a bazillion times, which is of course uh, hy- hyperbolic. It probably doesn't.
0: <laughs> but again, it, it's smarter to, to shore up your boat before you try to shore up the steamliner.
1: Yeah. You're just trying to take control of your life. We overcomplicate money. It, it, it's just a resource. It's just a resource. And and if you view it as a resource, just as you view time and brain power, for that matter, and attention, which I also also think is a resource of what you give your attention to, um, it sort of makes it a little bit easier. I think we're just so intimidated by money because we once had it, now we don't. It's a resource.
0: Well, this is great, uh, great advice, and hopefully, I will not ever need
1: it. Hey, if you do, it doesn't mean anything's gone wrong. It's just it happens. It it just happens, and it. You know, the same way we don't demonize uh, people talking about mental health, I don't think we should demonize people who've found themselves in hard financial times.
0: For some reason, I don't want to say goodbye.
1: (laughs) Well, I will. So thanks so much for having me, Mason. It's always good to talk. Thank you.
0: My thanks again to Pete Dunn. And a quick reminder, his column on personal finance appears regularly in the print edition of IBJ, and you can find several years' worth of his work at IBJ.com. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories and features in the latest print edition of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, a long-planned $92 million mixed-use redevelopment project is taking shape on a 19-acre site in downtown Greenwood, starting with a city-owned sports field house. Susan Orr outlines the strategy behind the Madison and reinvigorating Greenwood's core. Also in this week's issue, John Russell has all the details about Eli Lilly and Company's new weight loss drug, terzepatide, which has performed spectacularly well in clinical trials and could boost Lilly's top line by $5 billion per year. And Leslie Benia Muniz examines how a 13-member state task force plans to address Indiana's affordable housing shortage, in large part by rethinking regulations that builders and critics say drive up construction costs. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say it is quite a bit easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. It works out to about $2 per week for actionable information you're not going to find anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com, click on that subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast, which is edited by Leslie Weidenbenner. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.